Let's take a little time to reveal the prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed. Mix them all together on this ancient land. It's time to spread some paleo jam. Welcome to another episode of Paleo Jam. I'm your host, Michael Mills, and we're live in Armadale for National Science Week at a very fine brewery called The Welder's Dog. Hello, people of Armadale. Best audience we've had for the whole tour, saving the best till last. We are here on Anawan Country, and in so being, I think we're reminded that here in Australia, a continent of countries, we live in a place where stories have been told for thousands of years, where knowledge and understanding has been shared across thousands of generations, and that it's really important that in acknowledging those stories of the ancestors that have come before us, those stories become a part of who we are. And the stories that we tell are then added to the layers of stories that are told in this remarkable and ancient land. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about the creatures that once dwelt in this place. Maybe not the brewery, or maybe in the place where the brewery now is, but of the megafauna, the dinosaurs and other critters, and of how where we are has changed rather a lot over the last few hundred million years. And to discuss all of this, and more are a bunch of awesome paleontologists from the University of New England, which is just down the road from here. First up, Professor John Patterson. <laughs> oh, that's the John Patterson fan club is here tonight. Dr. Marissa Betts. And of course, on the end there, the one and only Dr. Nick Campioni. So maybe let's, let's start. Um, there's, a, there's an old saying in geology that the rocks remember. Um, and, and I want to start us, and thinking about and visualising. We're here now, when you get to the airport here in, in, in Armadale, there are all these signs that say, welcome to um, high country, you're in the highest city in Australia. But if I was to get into my TARDIS and without moving in space, but just moving in time, Things have been quite different in the past, in this place, right where we are, and have changed quite dramatically. So maybe, Marissa, do you want to paint us a picture of um, how, like, some of the changes? Well, if we were to go back half a billion years and we were sitting where we are now, what, what would it be like? What would we be looking at? Well, half a billion years ago, so 500 or so million years ago, we were talking about this this morning, weren't we? Um, where we are now would have been ocean. And um, actually you were saying it very well, John, that um, Broken Hill all the way inland today would have been beachfront property. <laughs> and um, it wasn't until um, quite a bit later, so since about 500 million years, Eastern Australia slowly built out over time. So it's, it's gradually moved eastward and eventually Sydney became a thing. Yeah, eventually, yeah. So Sydney was kind of like the tail end of it. Yeah, so... Uh, so are you, you saying Adelaide, my hometown, came before Sydney? Absolutely. Excellent, yeah. good, good. <laughs> so the rocks, get, the rocks get younger and younger the um, closer you get to the east coast, generally. 
Okay, and, and across that time, though, there have been a great diversity of, of animals that have lived here across that half a billion years. Um, maybe we should look. Look, paleontology, right? Paleontology, the first thing that people think about and talk about with paleontology, of course, is dinosaurs. Sure. <laughs> and, uh, and there are a whole bunch of dinosaurs that lived in New South Wales. Mm -hmm. um, so what can you tell us, Nick, about the dinosaur heritage of this place? Because I think it's important when we talk about fossils, we, we, we're talking about the fossil heritage of the place, aren't we? Of course, yeah, we're talking about the organisms that have lived in these areas, and they're there sort of for us to sort of understand where we came from, where, how we got to where we are today. Um, and when we think about the dinosaur heritage of New South Wales, probably the best place in New South Wales to find dinosaurs are deep down in the mines of Lightning Ridge. So we, and Lightning Ridge is a place where they get, and I know this because in South Australia we get opalized fossils, but yep. Lightning Ridge you get opalized Fossils. Yeah, so all the fossils in Lightning Ridge are completely obelized. Um, we can find some traces of the original fossil remaining, but for the most part, we find kind of like these casts, these infills uh, in, in, in the rock. Okay, so, so what have we found? Ooh, it's a, it's a tricky question, but we have found probably, if you think of typical dinosaurs, you think of long-necked dinosaurs, we know they're there. We're currently digging up uh, an entire sauropod from one of those mines. Uh, sauropod being long neck. Sauropod yep. being the long neck dinosaurs. Uh, but then from there, we know that there are a bunch of other herbivorous dinosaurs, things like ornithopods. These are bipedal to quadrupedal, sometimes small, sometimes quite gigantic uh, herbivorous dinosaurs of the time. They typically had good teeth for processing plant material. We also have evidence of theropod dinosaurs, so meat-eating dinosaurs. Things like lightning, well, lightning claw was never given a formal name, but it's something so why, along why the lines. So why is that? Why, why doesn't, so, so if you go to the, the museum here at, um, at the University of New England, there's a, there's a cast of, of lightning claw. Um, why, why, why doesn't it have a name like Tyrannosaurus rex? Why is, it, why is it called lightning claw? You need to be lucky. You need to find the right bones. Like we, you can find a bone that tells you that you're looking at a theropod, you're looking at a meat-eating dinosaur, or a sauropod, a long-necked dinosaur. But if you don't have the specific bone that tells you that this is a new species, then all you know is you have a general sort of um, animal. It's the same thing if you were to go to, say, the Serengeti Desert and look at a bunch of the bovid antlered animals. They, they're not going to be uh, distinguishable based on, say, for instance, a femur. You need to ha you find the skulls, and for the most part, we need to find the skulls for dinosaurs, and we don't have the skull of Lightning Claw. Can't you go and find it? <laughs> We're trying, ma'am. Like, but, but that's part of the thing, isn't it? Like, how, how do you find these things? Why is it so hard to find the skulls? Skulls of dinosaurs, I mean, we have an example here of an animal called Serolophus from Mongolia. It's a really exquisitely preserved animal. The Mongolian stuff, got buried very, very quickly. But from what we can tell from Lightning Ridge, things probably sat out for a little while, got scavenged, got, things got removed. Skulls have nice uh, fleshy cheeks. Uh, and so, so skulls are delicious. They are often delicious. <laughs> yeah, why not? They're, there's meat there. <laughs> well, I've, I've, I've had fish head soup. I've made fish head soup. It's, it's disgusting. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
John, we were talking this morning about um, some of the megafauna that have been found here. Um, and one of the things that I always find really fascinating about the megafauna, so we're talking about, so I've got a little toy here of an animal that looks a little bit, people often go, oh, it's a giant wombat. No, it's not a giant wombat, it's wombat-like. Um, but it was as big as a hippopotamus. It's called a diprotodon. Um, and it's related, it's like, it's like if you were to call a pig uh, an antelope, calling this a, this a wombat. But these are animals that lived here up until 40, 50,000 years ago. And there's some really interesting, where well, I come from in Adelaide, there's a, or, or north of Adelaide on Adnyamatna country, there's a story about an animal called Yamoti. And the elders talk about this story and they, over many thousands of years, the young Adnyamatna kids were told to be afraid of Yamoti as a story. And, and so the elders and the, the, the university scientists were sitting down chatting one day and they're like, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about the same animal. And that's one of the really wonderful and unique and fascinating things about Australia is that we have direct connections to some of these animals that are being researched in universities, but there's different ways of understanding them through stories that have been passed down, through rock art and stuff. So, so John, what do we know about the megafauna that lived around here? Because there are some sites not too far away, aren't there? Yeah, so there's a site um, not far from Glen Innes called Redistone Creek. It's well known for sapphires, but also within the same gravels, where you find the sapphires, you find the bones of what we call the megafauna. So megafauna are just very giant, most of them are giant mammals. So the protodon, which we're talking about, gets to about the size of, a, I think, a hippo. Um, and we've got a bit of a replica here. So you can see um, some of the teeth of the protodon. If you're listening protodon. at home, you can't see. You can't but. see, no, but for those in the audience, um, you can see that's the lower jaw, so it's quite, quite long. We're, we're looking at about 50 centimetres long. And this is by far the most common animal in the Redistone Creek biota. Um, but we do find evidence of other um, large mammals. So Thylacoleo is another one colloquially known as the marsupial lion. And, and, yeah, and, and Thylacoleo is a giant predator. So if you think about, if you're going to make Ice Age down under, you don't have a woolly mammoth, you have a diprotodon. You don't have a saber-toothed tiger, you've got Thylacoleo. Mm -hmm. And some of the interesting things that have come out of Redistone Creek, um, uh, we're not just finding bones where you can say, okay, this lived here, that lived, lived there but we're seeing evidence of interaction. So a paper was published in the early 80s where um, someone found a leg bone of Diprotodon and it had a huge bite mark of uh, a Thylacoleo. So we know that Thylacoleo was eating, or at least trying to eat, uh, Diprotodon. But there's also kangaroo, giant kangaroos and all kinds of things. And that's a, that's a very different kind of fossil, isn't it? Where it has, it has, a pathology or it has a mark on it. It's a, it's a trace fossil, we call it. So it can, you, you can have fossilised footprints. And those, those footprints tell us a bit more of a story, don't they? Because, you know, it's nice when you see a, a, an illustration of a prehistoric thing in a, in, in a book, or you see a drawing of, of, of whether it's a, 
uh, Australovenator, an Australian dinosaur, or a Diprotodon, but it's looking at what those animals were doing. And that's part of, I guess, reconstructing past environments, of knowing that they weren't just these animals here, but what were they doing? What did they do all day? Um, Marissa, you, you study little tiny things. Um, what do we know about the little tiny things, and, and like microscopic fossils, so what do we know about the little <laughs> tiny things that lived around here? Um, I work on the early Cambrian, so that's around, the, the base of the Cambrian period is around 540 or 538, depends who you ask, million years ago. And like we said earlier, at that time, um, Armadale around here was ocean. Um, and there wasn't a lot of land for, um, um, for animals to um, be preserved on, and there weren't even animals on land at the time. <laughs> So most of life um, in the early Cambrian, um, all, all life was in the ocean. And there are some rocks preserved in rocks near um, Tamworth. So they're clasts in a conglomerate. So these are limestones that have been worked from some other strange terrain and deposited within um, some sediments. We don't really know where they've come from but they have fossils in them that tell, them that tell us that they are Cambrian in age, and they're very similar. The fossils in them are very similar to things that we find in Queensland. So that is a bit of a mystery, actually. And one of the great things about science like paleontology is that it is those mysteries, isn't it? It's those things we don't know. Um, you mentioned 540 million years. Um, how do you know? Oh, how, do, how do we know that stuff? How do we know that something's, you know, the, the, the protodon skeleton bones that we find in Narracourt Caves of a particular age, where I come from in South Australia, uh, how do we know that these things are 540 million years old? Because people often ask, and people, we often talk quite freely, like, oh yeah, mm. you know, uh, 66 million years ago, most of the dinosaurs were wiped out. How do we work on a Tuesday those afternoon? Out? Blah blah blah. Yes. On Tuesday, the twenty seventh of July, sixty six point two. Oh, yeah. It was a Thursday. <laughs> Sorry, thanks, Nick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of what I do is uh, I'm a paleontologist. I call myself a paleontologist and a geologist. But a lot of what I do is time scale building. So, pretty much everybody here has probably heard of the geological time scale, and people have heard of the term Jurassic or Cretaceous, um, the Cambrian is what I work on, but how do we define those particular ages? And, and that's a really important question. And um, myself and my colleagues and my students over there as well are doing lots of work, particularly in the Cambrian, um, to subdivide geological time using fossils. And we use the t very small fossils, micro fossils, that, to help us do that. And it's a combination of um, the way these fossils evolve through time. So we can say this particular assemblage of older fossils occurs at this particular age, and then if we find another set of fossils and we know that they're a little bit more, um, bit younger, we can put them on top. So it's a bit of a relative kind of a, um, uh, activity, but we also can use uh, volcanic ashes. So perhaps on a Tuesday afternoon, in the sedimentary succession, a volcano erupted and left volcanic ash sandwiched in those sedimentary rocks. 
and those are the things that we can really date and we can get a really hard number on those. And so it's a combination of using those fossils, um, maybe some other geochemical tools uh, in, uh, with, with those fossils as well um, to be able to put the time scale together. Okay, so speaking of, of um, time and changes and stuff, so we were talking this morning um, at, at the uni about New England during the Permian period. So that's the one just before the Triassic. And at the end of the Permian period, we see the biggest extinction of life that's ever happened in the history of, of the world. And it obviously made possible the dinosaurs because what we know about life on Earth is that, as a certain movie said, life finds a way. Life can recover if you give it a chance. Nature, we're, we're never going to wipe life off the planet. We're not that good at destroying things. I mean, we're pretty good at it, but we're never going to destroy life on the planet. Life finds a way. Um, Nick. Yes. What can you tell us about that time leading up well, to the Permian extinction? Well, on a global scale, the world was changing. There was a big shift across the Permian um, continentally. So we went from having a variety of different continents kind of spread out and across the Paleozoic and kind of hitting a pinnacle in the, in, in the Permian and then into the Triassic, you have this amalgamation of continents, which I know most, many of you will know the name of, Pangaea. And the thing about Pangaea is that it destroyed environments. You had a bunch of coastal uh, environments. All the, the beautiful stuff that John and Marissa worked on, all of a sudden, it got wiped out. All of this beautiful life living on these nice sort of shallow marine, you destroy those coastlines by amalgamating a continent together. So, so why, how does that, why, why does that happen? Why does that happen? All the, I, I, some geology stuff, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> No, just some geology stuff. <laughs> but because, it, but obviously, geology has a significant impact on biology, doesn't it? 100%, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not a geologist, but continents coming together, moving around, I mean, we, we, in my head, it's, you know, continents floating on, ma on, on sort of magma. Is that correct to say yes. that these days? Yeah. Yeah, okay. But, yeah. So, <laughs> kind of think about them kind of floating around, and once in a while, they will crash into each other. And probably um, Pangaea is not the first supercontinent that we've seen in Earth history. And, and probably not the last, because Australia is last, moving right. north, and I think so, South America and Africa, are they going to get back together again? So currently, <laughs> uh, the Pacific Ocean is getting smaller, and the Atlantic Ocean is getting larger. Ah, so South America is going the other way. Mm. All right, so this, the breakup's still happening. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's continental drift is a constant process. Okay, so um, at the end of the Permian, New England was, would it be fair to say it was a complete wasteland? Uh, eventually, yeah. yes. Yeah. So, and, and that's the thing to remember, where we are now. You know, and, and, and I think that's the, the thing to try and, and get our heads around. When we talk about, you know, we, we often, in paleontology, we often talk about, people often ask me about T-Rexes and, and Diplodocus and all of these other dinosaurs that come from other parts of the world. But what's really interesting is to think about, well, what was happening right here? You know, and you can narrow it down to Australia, but then you can narrow it down even closer. So New England was, because it wasn't high country, was it? 
No. Was it? Well, during the Permian, there was, there was a lot of interesting things happening, at least in New South Wales, where in the early part of the Permian, there was a lot of glaciation. There's so great evidence for that down, in the, um, down on the south coast. But by the time you get into the late part of the Permian, things are shifting quite a lot. So uh, things are getting a bit warmer. We get a lot of our um, coal deposits were forming at that time. So particularly in what we call the Sydney Basin, but further up this way in Gunnedah as well. So a lot of forests. And then around about this time, we start to see increased volcanism on, on a very so big more scale. more volcanoes. And lots yes. and lots of volcanoes. Crazy number of eruptions. So some of the great research that's also being done at UNE is by our geologists. And one of them's in the, in the audience, I believe. And they worked out very recently that a crazy amount of volcanic material was being erupted um, over a very short amount of time. So over a period of about four million years. Just a short period of time. But that's, it, it is funny, we laugh at that, but it, well, the earth is, it's not, four million years is not a long time. The, the earth is 4.6 billion, so four million is not much. And in, about, in that amount of time, there was about 150,000 cubic kilometres of volcanic material that was erupted. So how do we get... Can anybody visualise that? How, say that again. Say that number again, John. 150,000 cubic kilometres. So one cubic kilometre would be like one kilometre up, one kilometre that, and one, like... <laughs> but 150,000 of those. Yes, Just and, and constantly. So over that four million year period, it could have been as frequent as 50,000 years at a time that stuff is getting thrown out. So you can imagine, uh, for those of you old enough to remember, say, Mount St. Helens eruption in, in, in North America, which is huge, and it changed climate for a little bit there, and that was pretty minor <laughs> compared to this one. So... It was basically a way of shifting Earth's climate over a very short amount of time, which led to this mass extinction of about, well, up to 95% of all life. 95%. So there's, there's more than 100 people in the room. So it would be as if everyone in the audience died and the four of us up here survived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you laughed, but we're up here. We survived. <laughs> but that, that's the scale of it, isn't it? It's, and it's, it's, but, but the fascinating part is, is and, what, and I'll start open to, to, to the three of you, how is it, what, what is it about the resilience of life that seas are able to survive or, or recover? I mean, obviously it took a while. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really fascinated by those events because we, we talk about um, the end Permian mass extinction uh, was the largest, but we talk about the big five and... What's another one? Does anyone else know what another big extinction was? Dinosaur one. And, and when was that? 66 million years ago. Yeah. But Very like, large rock smashed into Mexico. Right. Um, and like you said before, life finds a way. But what happens is, is that um, a lot of things, and particularly at the end, end Permian, um, uh, are wiped out, and it means that there are uh, ecological niches, I guess you can say, um, that become vacated. And it takes a long time, 
but eventually they become filled, um, and often by different groups. And a really uh, wonderful example of that are reefs. So reefs are very um, uh, delicate things. You know, we think about the Great Barrier Reef in the modern day and how that is being affected quite badly by climate change. Um, and reefs at the end of each of these big five really took huge hits, but they came back and it was different kinds of organisms that built reefs again and again and again. And now we have the this beautiful scleractinian reefs, the, the scleractinian corals that built our Great Barrier Reef. But in the past, it's been um, bivalves that have built reefs. It's been sponges that have built reefs um, and various other um, organisms. So that's a great example. Okay, so we've got, I can never believe how quickly the time zooms by with this stuff. Uh, we've got about five minutes um, to go. Just want to come back to the stuff to, to the particular creatures that lived here in, in this place. And if, if you could pick from what you know, that the three of you know, um, an animal to, to represent New England in the fossil record, something that, that's here, what, what would you pick? What's your favorite and why? John, you first. I'm going to be really weird and say probably some sort of radiolarian. A what? <laughs> so radiolarians... Sounds like something from Doctor Who, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I know I mentioned TARDIS before. A radio what? Radiolarian. A radiolarian. Okay, Good choice, I've got that. John. Good choice. Thank I you. love it. I knew you'd like that because it's a microfossil. So these are tiny little single-celled organisms that secrete a little shell, if you like, that's made of quartz. And these things live in the ocean today, but we have them here in Armadale that are about 350 million years old. And a lot of the rocks in the Armadale region, including probably some of the rocks below us right now, are made up of a rock called Chert, which is a quartz-rich rock. And that includes all of these tiny little organisms that make them up. So in terms of just sheer abundance, I would say already Alarian is a good representative. Oh, um, Nick. I'm also going to be weird. I'm going to say dichrodium and hydephilum. What? <laughs> Plants. Ah, oh, them. Yeah, yeah all no, them. them. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we have this amazing uh, set, a plant assemblage near Nimboida uh, that it's uh, actually, it used to be a coal mine for, for, for a long time. Uh, there's still actually active coal burning in that area. And the interesting thing about that, those coal seams is that they seem to be the first return to coal. So we've talked about the end Permian mass extinction. So one of the things that actually suffered a lot across the end Permian mass extinction were plants. And we seem to lose coal um, in the fossil record globally. And so there weren't enough plants to make coal, coal to be made. Correct, yeah, exactly. Just think about that for a minute. Plants. The, 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 so much life was wiped out, yep. coal couldn't be created. And those nimboida coal measures may be the first globally evidence of coal coming back. So we talked about the, the, the forests being, uh, you know, pre pre prevalent in, 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 uh, in New South Wales across that, that, that interval of the, the Permian. Well, I think that's sort of, it makes, makes those plants iconic. Dicrodium is found globally. Um, one of the evidences that things were kind of together help support Pangaea, but Heidi Phillum seems to be unique 
to that plant assemblage. So I'm going to pick those ones. Despite my love of dinosaurs, I'm going to pick those as so an controversial. iconic. I know. So, so for, for, so, an, for an okay. iconic New South Wales fossil. M Marissa. Have you used up all my time? Marissa, are you going <laughs> to... Are you going to go weird as well? Um, I'm going to go invertebrate, so I don't know. I, I don't think that's weird so at all. So, no skeleton? No. Well, they do have, they do have hard well, parts. Well, exoskeleton, hard parts. Yeah. yeah. So, out at Tamworth, um, there are some wonderful sequences of rocks that preserve reefs. I talked about reefs a bit earlier. Um, and other kinds of um, uh, marine biota, marine fossils, and they are dominated by a thing called crinoids. And crinoids are related to starfish. Everyone's heard of starfish in the modern day. But instead of being able to walk around like starfish can, um, crinoids had a long stalk, a little bit like a plant, and this uh, root structure that they can um, hold on to the sea bottom and a flowery top that they would filter feed with. So how do you know it's not a plant? Because um, it's related to modern uh, echinoderms, <laughs> which are animals. And how do you know that? <laughs> I have to finish telling you about these beautiful <laughs> reefs. Yes, go on. Um, and so the rocks out there at Tamworth are absolutely teeming with all of these beautiful crinoids. And often, because they're made up of lots of different types of um, parts of their bodies, they're called ossicles. Um, and I know I've seen, I've got some students in the back who I've taken out to find lots of beautiful crinoids, and they fall apart with the wave action, and they produce a lot of these limestones out there, and they're called crinoidal limestones. Well, I'm going to go, I get to pick one as well. I'm going to go Thylacoleo. Thylacoleo, um, I sometimes call it a giant scissor tooth possum. Or maybe I'm going to go lightning claw because dinosaurs are cool. Anyway, um, can we please thank Marissa, Nick, and John? Thank you, Armadale. My name is Michael Mills, I'm your host. It's time to spread some paleo jazz.